few weeks ago, Pastor was saying that he wanted to do something different today. And I said, well, I'd like to take part. And so here we are. And, and I wasn't sure what he wanted to do. I was hoping he'd want to spend the next hour talking about our motorcycle adventures this summer. <laughs> but I found out, no, he wanted to do something much more important. He wanted to talk about the greatest book ever written. And he wanted to talk about your questions about the greatest book ever written. And I was reading an article about the Bible this week, and it talked about the sales of the Bible and how many have sold. There's no book even close, not even in the ballpark. And this book is a complicated one. And a, a few years ago, uh, Gary Blackmore told me mm -hmm. one time that this book is like driving a standard automobile. I don't know if any of you still remember the old standards. Well, if you're in first gear when you start reading this book, you read and read and read, and at the end of the first gear, it kind of runs out of power. You've read it, and nothing more is sinking in, but you've got to shift in the second. And then when you shift in the second, all of a sudden this book opens up even more. Like your car, mm. all of a sudden you have more power. Now you're breaking the speed limit going down St. Peter's because second gear is 65 kilometers an hour, 70 kilometers an hour. And I saw a small little car going down with black tinted windows going down faster than 50 and 60 kilometers <laughs> an hour. And as you continue to read this book and as you get onto the Autobahn type highways in Germany with no speed limits, you shift into third and fourth gear and this book still gives you something else. It's the mm. same words, and it's like that, auto, or that standard transmission. You're shifting, and there's more information coming mm. from it. That's good. And this week, we had an opportunity to uh, receive a bunch of questions about this book. And I'm certainly glad it's not me answering the question, because <laughs> there's some very tough questions that you brought forward. And, and I'm sort of going to be the moderator and, and uh, direct us with the questions. And although these questions are very difficult and we're going to get through as many as we can, uh, if you submitted a question, watch the EB update. We're going to do a supplemental one this week where Pastor is going to produce a video on some of the questions we can't, can't get to because these questions are very, very thought-provoking. Some people went to fifth-gear overdrive right <laughs> away. And uh, again, I'm glad Pastor is, is answering the question. So are we ready to sure. dig in? Sure. Yeah, let's dive in. Let's go to question number one. Maybe the toughest one of, their, of the bunch. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. It is our belief that the Garden of Eden was on planet Earth. In Revelations 22, 1-2, it mentions that the tree of life is in heaven. Or is this the case of Eden being restored on the new Earth? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so something we need to, uh, and, and yeah, the, the reference regarding the, the tree of life, mm -hmm. we're probably all familiar with the one in Genesis where it talks about the, the two trees in the center of the garden. Mm -hmm. um, the one in, in Revelation is uh, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water uh, water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, the New, the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing 
of the nations. And so one thing we need to, uh, to understand is what was Eden, right? What was Eden? Eden was not just a garden like we think of, you know, we've got a few gardeners here in the house, right? Um, and it wasn't just a, just a garden or just a nice backyard or, or whatever. Eden, as we, as we understand in, and read what's going on in Genesis, Eden is a place on earth where the, the dimensions of heaven and earth overlap. God's intention, so we see, we see that Eden was a place that God, I don't know what this looked like, but God actually walked on earth, walked in the cool of the day with, with Adam and Eve. There was, there was so, so these two atmospheres, these two, these two realms or these two places overlapped in this place called Eden. And it was God's intention, as we understand, that Eden would grow. Outside of Eden was, was you know, the Eden was beautiful. It was, you know, there was all this great, you know, uh, trees and plants and food and all this stuff. Um, and God's intention was that Adam and Eve would work and partner with God to see Eden grow. That, that, that the overlap of heaven and earth would cover the whole earth. So the whole earth would be basically Eden. That's, yeah, that was, that, the was the, that was the plan. Um, now, uh, so, so what happens is Adam and Eve are, you know, when they sin, they're kicked out of Eden um, and it's guarded so that they cannot return. Uh, so they can't return and eat the tree of life because God said if they, if they, in this sinful state, if they eat the tree of life, they'll live forever sinful. And that's, it's better that they, they die physically and enter into, you know, they're, they're, they're heaven, they're, they're redeemed, right? So, so the overlap of heaven and earth was broken when Adam and Eve sinned. So in a sense, Eden didn't go anywhere, but it did. It was no longer on planet Earth, but it was still, it was still the glory and the presence of God. It just no longer overlapped with our, with our three-dimensional space, right? And so that, that overlap was broken. And, and so as we go through the, the Old Testament, we see that the temple becomes the place where heaven and earth overlap. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus becomes the place where heaven and earth overlap. And then when Jesus dies, rises, and ascends into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit to fill his church, the Bible says that we are now the temple. And as we gather, we are the place where heaven and earth overlap. But when Jesus returns, and I'm not talking about the rapture, I'm not when, talking about when he calls his church out of the world, but when he, when he comes for good, he's bringing heaven with him. And uh, that's what the Bible is talking about in Revelation 21 when it says that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. It's the best way John can describe 
the, the, the realm and the atmosphere of heaven coming and joining with earth. And the two become one space. And God's dwelling place is with humans and, and, and the tree of life. And all that heaven is comes to join and overlap completely with heaven, with earth. So, Pastor, it goes, first of all, from Eden to the temple, to Jesus, to us, and then with the return, it's... It's, it's all redeemed. It's all, it's redeemed all restored. Again. God's plan, His original plan is accomplished all at once in Christ. Is right? there any point in this transition where it is no longer visible, where it left? Well, it left Earth um, because the two two spaces didn't overlap okay. anymore, right? But it didn't, from God's perspective, it didn't go anywhere. He was there, right? He was there, but yeah, we weren't attaching. We weren't yeah. where we needed to be. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Tough question to open things up. Uh, going on to something more personal. Um, how do I honor the Lord if my spouse? does not want to tithe due to past church hurts. Yeah, that's a really, uh, whoever, the person that asked that question, question. Uh, appreciate your, your honesty and openness to ask the question. Um, I almost hesitated uh, answering it publicly, but, but I'm, I'm sure that this person knew that it was being talked about publicly. That's what we're, what, why we asked for the questions. So, uh, how do I honor the Lord if my spouse doesn't want to tithe due to past church hurts? I, I think you honor, you honor the Lord by honoring your spouse. Um, we really encourage couples to be in unity. The Bible says that when a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh. Right? They become one flesh. And, and that means, in my humble opinion... That means uh, you don't have his money and her money, or you don't hide secret purchases from one another, but you make decisions together um, and work towards unity in your financial decisions. And I know that that can be difficult, uh, you know, when, when one spouse wants to be obedient in the area of giving, and they feel like, you know, they're being held back from being obedient to God by the, by the other person. But, you know, the, the Lord knows your heart. God knows your heart. He knows that you wrestle with this. Um, but what's happening is you're caught between obeying the Lord in two, you know, obeying or disobeying the Lord in two different areas, right? If you, if you honor your spouse, you dishonor the Lord in the area of tithing. And if you honor the Lord in the area of tithing, you dishonor your spouse. And you're, it's a catch-22, right? It's 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 so so there's a there's a almost a triage that needs to happen of what's the more important thing to God. Right? Does that make sense? Which of these is more precious to the Lord? And uh, and I believe as we as we weigh those and as we triage those, people always take priority over things. Okay? And so God told you to, to love God and love people. 
And if we're being unloving to people in order to be obedient in the area of things, we have things out of order. Um, so I think, I think for this person, and, and it may, this may actually probably does um, weigh on a number of people's hearts, and, and it's a situation that a number of people are dealing with here. Um, so I would pray, pray for your spouse's healing, um, and some people are wrestling with this in the area of uh, maybe have a spouse who doesn't even know the Lord and, and is wrestling with, with this. And I would say, you know, as we, as, we honor, as we honor our spouse, we make room for them to see that this, this isn't, um, this isn't a... Um, you know, that, that they're, not, they're not going to lose out by you following Jesus, but they're actually going to gain because you're going to become someone who even more honors the, the commitment, the marriage commitment that's there. Um, yeah? Should we uh, uh, be talking with our spouse about the importance that this yeah. is to us? Yeah, thank you, Jim. Yeah, I think, I think so, so pray for their healing from those past hurts. And also... Don't be afraid to engage the conversation um, because they're on a journey, mm -hmm. right? And where they, where they were five years ago on this, when you maybe last had the conversation, may not be where they're at now or, or maybe where they're going to be in two years when, when you show them that you're honoring them in this process. Maybe, maybe there's going to be some growth and shifting that happens. So, so engage with the conversation. Share your heart for sure. And, uh, and see what the Lord will do. And, and that was yeah. something to go along with that question. Uh, with the cost of, of life moving forward, it's, I think a lot of people are having difficulty matching the tithe. And, and what I've been taught about, about tithing is it, it's got to be something from the heart. It's got to be not something you're, you're, you're forcefully being giving mm -hmm. away. So something mm -hmm. that the, the spouse that you need to talk about, you yeah. need to agree upon yeah. that. Maybe we can't match this this week financially, but maybe that we work on asking the Lord to to uh, fill our coffers more and, and the weeks where we can feel comfortable. But it's got to be the heart. It's right. Come from the heart. It's not about compulsion yeah. or being yeah. arm twisted, to, yeah. but it's God. As scripture says, God loves a cheerful giver. So we, we give with a, a grateful and thankful heart. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Next difficult question. How do we as Christians compare to the Jews as God's chosen people? Yeah, this is, if I understood the question, um, and, and I, Where did you put us? I'll do my best, yeah. yeah. Um, so, God's plan was always for all of humanity to know him and be his, be his sons and daughters, be his people. Um, we see in we see in Genesis. Now we we know that there's there was the story of the fall into sin when Adam and Eve disobeyed, right? In in Genesis chapter three. But in reality, there were there are a number of falls that we see in Genesis. Um, so so there's the 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 disobedience of Adam and Eve. Um, 
there's at least there's at least three falls. We could also add in there maybe Cain and Abel and what happened there. But there's at least three falls. There's Adam and Eve and their fall. There's in Genesis chapter 6, we see the fall of uh, divine beings or, or angelic beings where they, they left their right place, their rightful place, and they entered into sexual relationships with, with human women. Right? And we've got this really weird... So these are a couple passages that maybe you thought were just this obscure, weird thing. But actually, they, they are very important and significant. So, so these angelic beings left their rightful place. And there was this fall. This he heavenly fall of these angels to disobey God and enter into... Uh, and, and what happened was uh, there were actually these... these uh, uh, people began to worship these, these, uh, these angelic beings. And, and you, have the, um, you have the Nephilim. These are the, the offspring of these relationships that the Bible, some translations call giants, right? And, and we see this throughout the old, the, some of the Old Testament where you've got the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Anakim, they give different names for them. But you've got these, these demi, kind of demigods, these, these half-human, half-angelic beings that were highly honored and worshipped. And they were the you know, inspiration for some of the hero stories and Greek mythology and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, weird stuff. But, it's, but the Bible talks about this. And it's very, it's very significant as we go through. So the second fall is in Genesis 6. In Genesis 10, we have what's called the table of the nations. There's a bunch of nations described. 70 nations. 70 people groups are described in Genesis chapter 10. Then in Genesis chapter 11, you have the third fall. And it's the fall of humans to begin to, to worship these, these divine, these angelic beings. As, as demonic false gods. And they, so the Tower of, of Babel is not just some, some people got this idea, let's, let's, build, a, let's build a cool building. But it's, it's actually about, because you, you look at the ziggurats and the pyramids and the, the, these buildings that were built in the ancient world, they were temples. And, and the, on the top of the ziggurats were these temples where, where this this Sorry to get weird, but that you know this this angelic human coupling would happen as part of their worship, right? So so um, so then in in Genesis chapter eleven, so the table of nations is in ten. Genesis chapter eleven, you have the uh, the Tower of Babel and and this. Third fall, where humans begin to worship these, these beings. And it becomes, it becomes like all these people are doing it. The vast majority of these, of, of the humans on earth. This is after the flood. God's already dealt with this once. And here we are again. And the, and the humans are worshiping these, these demonic beings. To the point where God, God separates them. And from other places, we... I won't read all the scriptures because it, it takes too much time. But 
from other scriptures, we know that God basically gave over all of these nations to the worship of their false gods. You, if, that's, if that's what you want, you can, you can reap the consequences of it. And he gave over the nations. And then the very next thing we see is in Genesis 12, God coming to Abraham and saying, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And out of you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God's promise to Abraham, I know this is a long setup, but God's promise to Abraham was about redeeming all of these other nations. God put a plan in place that through Abraham and his seed, God would restore all of these nations that had been given over to the worship of demonic beings, that eventually all those nations would come back. So he's talking to about God. us at this point. Right, yeah. right. So, of course, so God says all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. So God raised up from Abraham the nation of, of Israel. And through Israel, of course, we come to Jesus. Right? And, and in Christ, the, the true seed of Abraham in Christ um, our, our salvation is one, right? Our salvation is one. And um, it's interesting that we see when the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the people, all the people from 15 different nations hear these people speaking their language. We, the, the restoration of the nations has already begun, Right? And Paul tells us, so Paul describes all of this by saying that, um, that God, um, first of all, in Romans 2, verse 28, Paul writes, A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and, and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcised, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, he says. Um, and so, so uh, Paul goes on to say in, in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, this is all through Romans, it's, it's powerful stuff, but in, in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, Paul says how we who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews, who come to Jesus, are now grafted into Israel. Why is that important? Because at, by believing in Jesus, we become part of this family that God chose out of the rebellious nations of the world. We become part of the new nation that God is making on the earth. And through that process, God is redeeming all those nations that rebelled against him. God is bringing people into Christ, which means they are in Abraham and they are part of that promise. And we will all... So, so what is the difference? God has not done away with Israel. He's actually used Israel all along to, to bring all of us into relationship with him. And does God still have a plan? We talked about this last week. So I won't go into it too much. But does God still have a plan for the, for the ethnic Jews? Yes, he does. 
right? As part of his, his evangelism plan, after the, after the church is taken out of the world, the, the Jewish people will realize Jesus was their Messiah all along. And they will become a force of bringing the hope of Christ around the world. But we are all part, we are all children of Abraham. We are all Abraham's seed by promise. Is it safe to say that the living water comes out of Israel? Yeah. 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 God chose to, to pour himself through Israel to the nations. Yeah. Yeah. Well explained. <laughs> Difficult question. Here's another question on, on, uh, on direction within, within the church. doesn't seem fair that a person who steals a chocolate bar is not saved while a murderer gets the same punishment. Right, so I'm, I'm assuming, I'm thinking that the, the, the question here is maybe talking about, about the issue of hell. I, I'm, I'm thinking that's what the question is getting at, is that someone... Steals you know, a chocolate bar is going to hell. This this small sin and this big sin and same why way. why are they the same? So, um, I would say we we don't we don't go to hell. Hopefully, none, none of us are going to. But but humans don't humans do not go to hell because of the number. Of bad things or the the size of the bad things that we do. That's not why we go to hell. Um, In fact, it isn't really about God sending us to hell. Hell is where we are already destined to go because of what we are, not because of the things that we have done. We are sinners. Right, so, so we are already doomed because we've been cut off from the life of God in us. God created Adam and Eve, breathed the breath of life into their lungs, and they became, the Bible says, they became a living, they became living beings. And the, the, the Spirit of God was in them. They were, they were co- connected. God was the 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 source of their life. And when the, God said, uh, in the day that you eat of the fruit, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, Adam lived like another, like hundreds of years after that, right? So how does it make sense that in the day that you eat of it, you will die? Well, he was talking about them being, they, the, they were cut off from the life of God. From him. In them. Yes. And so, so it's kind of like if you took a, uh, if you take a fish out of water and you put it in a birdcage, it's not gonna, it's not gonna live long, right? Because it doesn't have the ability to exist in a birdcage. You and I, before we come to Christ, we don't have heaven in us. And we aren't made in our fallen state to live in heaven. It's what we're missing. Yeah. And so we're, we're already doomed. The Bible says, uh, Jesus said in, in 
John 3.36, he says, you are, you are uh, the, the wrath of God is already on you. Like we're already in that state. So, so this is all about God rescuing people out of that, you know, their, their trajectory towards hell. God came, Jesus came so that no one would have to go to hell even though that's where humanity was already headed, right? Um, and so, um, Le Leonard Ravenhill, um, a revivalist in the, in the mid-1900s, um, said, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad men good, he came into the world to make dead men live. The problem is that we are dead. The problem is that we are dead. The problem is that on the day they ate of it, they died. Though they, they biologically continued to live in this world, they were spiritually dead in that moment. And all humans from that point on were born spiritually dead. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full, right? That, 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 that heaven might get in us. His first objective is not to get us into heaven, it's to get heaven into us. And when heaven gets into us, then we are fit for heaven. We are prepared for heaven. We can live like fish in a, fish in a fish pond, right? So it's the reverse of what the question actually says. It, it's about what we're missing. Yeah. Not about what we're dying. It's not about yeah. dying. It's about what we don't have in our life. Yeah. The fishbowl analogy yeah. is perfect. That yeah. The fish cannot li live in a birdcage, yeah. but it can only live in this situation. Sure. And we sure. have to be in Christ in order to live. Sure. Now, now when, when someone, if someone goes to hell after all is said and done, um, you know, the, the, the question might still remain if someone was you know, lived a pretty decent life on earth um, and another person was a mass murderer, is there, is there a difference in punishment in hell? That's a whole, maybe a whole other question. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us super, a lot of clarity on that, but there are a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas out there that, that there are levels and degrees of, of what hell looks like. That. Next question. Great answer. Why do we ask people who haven't made a decision to follow Christ to let the communion place pass them by? If Jesus died for our sins before we were born, never mind mourn again, wouldn't it be okay to, take, to partake as an acknowledgement of what he did for the world? I just wonder if Jesus would refuse someone who wanted to partake? I'd like to read that question again. It's a heavy one. Why do we ask people who haven't made a decision to follow Christ to let the communion place pass them by? If Jesus died for our sins before we were born, never mind mourn again, wouldn't it be okay to partake as an acknowledgement of what he did for the world? I just wonder if Jesus would refuse someone who wanted to simply partake. Right. 
Yeah, good question. Um, I think, first of all, one of the reasons that, that we do this is out of thoughtfulness for the, for the people who are coming in um, out of the world who maybe don't, don't have any frame of reference uh, for what's happening right now. You know, communion's a little, a little different, a little maybe weird from, a, from, an, from somebody who's never experienced it before, like what's happening right now. And, and so it's to alleviate some of that awkwardness of, am I supposed to take this? Am I not? Like, I don't what's, know what to do. What am I, I don't know what to do. And I don't want to feel embarrassed if I don't take it. And I don't want to be in trouble if I do. You know, all this stuff, right? Going through their heads. And so that's, that's part of it. Um, but secondly, I would say this, this has been the practice of the Christian church from the very beginning. Um. There's a, there's a book that we have from, uh, with, was written less than 100 years after Jesus died and rose again. Uh, it's called the Didache in Greek, the, the teachings. So the teachings of the apostles. And this book is a, it's a uh, ministry manual for the church that was written very early right? So within the first hundred years of the church's existence. And, uh, and this ministry manual um, says that, that only baptized believers should be permitted to participate in the Eucharist, the communion. Um, and in fact, uh, in the early church, we know from other writings as well that Un, unbaptized people were not even allowed in the room during the Eucharist. Um, they, they were in a process of training and preparing for baptism. Once you came to Christ, this was again all in, in ancient documents that we have, um, they, would, they would spend 40 days, this is, the, this is where Lent came from, they would spend 40 days leading up to uh, leading up to Easter, um, getting training and teaching and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and then uh, people would be baptized on Easter. And, uh, and so uh, once they were baptized, then they could join in the, the Eucharist or the, the Lord's Supper. Um, so, so the ancient practice of the Christian church, and I would say the, the third reason for this would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, where it says, uh, starting in verse 27, uh, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Um, so we can, you know, there, there can be certainly some debate of what it means uh, to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. But we certainly don't want to put people in a position of bringing judgment on themselves, of, of taking communion when they're not in the, in the right place to do so. Um, and so, um, 
and so bring judgment on themselves, right? To be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, right? So there's a lot of discussion about what all that means, but, but we want to be very careful to, that people are blessed by communion and not, and, you know, not bring uh, anything negative upon themselves. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. Good question. Uh, next question, there's sort of a, a series of questions looking at the Old Testament and the violence, the, the, uh, the warring of the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll read them together. What gives the Israelites the right to take over other countries in the Old Testament times? In the Old Testament, God commanded the destruction of the nations around Israel. How does this reconcile to our understanding of God's loving everybody? So the warring that went on during the Old Testament mm -hmm. and, and destroying this nation, just even coming into what was the promised land, they were told to destroy nations as they walked in. How does that match right. with the loving right. thing? So yeah, this is, a, this is a huge question. We probably could have taken our entire time this morning to just deal with these questions. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a quick answer. We're, we're, the, the clock's catching up on us. And, uh, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into it a little bit. And uh, so this is, a, this is a question that the, I mean, this, has, this is not a new question. I know that, I know that our 21st century sensibilities make this question even more difficult to struggle with, right? Um, however, from the very beginning, this has been a struggle. We, the, many of the early church fathers, the, the, the leaders of the church within the first three or four hundred years, wrote about this issue and, and expressed thoughts on this issue. And so it's not, it's not a new problem. Um, and, but it is a problem that, uh, for many of us, becomes a barrier in conversations with those who don't yet know Jesus, because this is maybe one of the first things they put in our face and just say, well, if this is your God, I don't want to have anything to do with him, right? It's, that's a, it's a, it's a challenge. One, one response that one of the early church leaders, I won't call him a church father because he was, he was, uh, he, he was deemed a heretic. Um, but one of, one of the early church leaders, uh, one of the ways that he dealt with this is not the way we want to deal with it. His name was Marcion, and, uh, and uh, he taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. That the Old Testament God was evil and Jesus came to save us from the evil Old Testament God. It's Marcionism, it's, it's heresy, and it's not something that we want to we get into, right? So we want to guard against that kind of thinking. Did it get much uh, levity? It did. I mean, it was part of a whole movement called Gnosticism that became a real issue that the church had to deal with in the first four or five hundred years, um, and church councils were held to deal with this, with this issue. Um, it certainly didn't, didn't, you know, affect the majority of the church, because the majority of the church held true to, to, to the scriptures, but 
Um, so part of the challenge here is, so, so the Marcion thing was the first of five possible ways of dealing with this issue. Um, so the second one, uh, it, some of the, many of the things in the Old Testament, many of the violent things that we read in the Old Testament um, need to be understood through an understanding that the, the, the literature, the kinds of literature that we find in the Old Testament, right? And understand what's going on there. We're reading this, remember we're reading back into a text that was written 3,000 years ago, and we're reading it with an understanding of how we perceive truth, how we perceive, um, you know, nations should get along, and, and all of those things. Um, so many of the things that we read in the Bible uh, are things that the Bible is describing, not prescribing. Right? Things that the Bible is saying, this is what happened. It's not saying this, this is what should happen. Right? Um, and, and so, in some situations, um, yeah, so, so we have, for example, the book of Judges is, is a, there's a lot of horrible things that happens in the book of Judges if you read it. Right? You're, I mean, page after page, you're like, what is going on? This is madness. Well, we read in the book of Judges four times the statement is made, there was no king. In those days, there was no king, and people did what was right in their own eyes. The whole point of Judges is that we're a mess. When, you know, we, we make a mess of things when we don't have right godly authority helping us stay on track, right? So it's like, look what's going to happen, or look yeah. what happened. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, what you read in the book of Judges is not like, hey, what a great idea. You know, when a, when a guy chops up his, his you know, his concubine is, is killed through, uh, a, you know, sexual violence, and then he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends it to the 12, you know, to the 12 tribes of Israel and calls everybody together to go to war against this group of people. And I mean, it's, it's horrific. The Bible isn't saying, hey, this guy had it together. He knew, you know, what a great guy. The Bible's just saying, what a mess, right? That things could get to the state that this would happen, right? Um, we, we see, for example, also something called the imprecatory psalms. There's a, there's a word for your vocabulary, imprecatory psalms. Basically, psalms where the people writing them are just saying, uh, God, kill everybody. Just go out there and kill everybody. You know, dash the babies against the rocks and, you know, do this and do that and all this violent stuff. And it's what's happening is people are experiencing injustice and they're mad and they're just venting, Right? They're venting. And the reality is, God invites our venting. Now, he doesn't want us to go out and live out the things that... If you did everything that came out of your mouth, if you did everything that crossed your mind when somebody, you know, ticks you off, that would be a bad thing, right? 
But if you took everything that comes across your mind when somebody ticks you off and you spewed it to God and said, God, man, what a rotten jerk they were to me, you know, and blah, blah, blah. God invites us to vent to him. So this is man just venting. Yeah, yeah, that's what the... And and they're writing it down so we can see where man can go to. Yep, that's that's specifically the... Those psalms, right? Some of the writings in the Old Testament are military propaganda. And this is something that happened in, in, in the, you know, we see it in the writings of other nations, not outside of the Bible, other nations of the time. You know, where they would, you know, if you look in, for example, uh, the, the histories that are written in Egypt in the time of the Exodus, you know, historians say, well, well, we don't see the, you know, the things that are described in Exodus and, and Israel coming out and Egypt being defeated. We don't see that in the writings of the Egyptians. So maybe it's not true. No, the reality is the Egyptians are not going to give themselves bad press. Right? They're always going to say, oh, we, we destroyed them. We crushed them. We defeated them. Right? Because it's, it's military, um, it's military propaganda. And, uh, and that was what was done in that day, in the literature of that day. People, people, it's like, it's like sports smack talk today, right? You know, that your team, you might, after, after a, a game where your team won, you might be like, oh, we annihilated them, Right? Now, you didn't mean that you literally killed everybody that was on the team, right? But it's smack talk. And, and so some of what we're reading in the Old Testament is smack talk, right? You know, the, we just annihilated every person. You know, sometimes you read, you know, all of the Amalekites were, were annihilated. They were all killed. And then, like, five chapters later, it's talking about the Amalekites. Well, I thought, well, they killed them all. Right? But what you've got is this smack talk thing going on, right? This, uh, the, and, and so, um, so those, so some of this is about uh, the, the literature. Um, some of it is about how God dealt with Israel in a kind of an an infant state of knowing what God was like. Okay? So, so um, when your child is um, two or three years old and they ask, uh, where did the sun go? You would say, well, the sun is sleeping because it's nighttime. Right? And then... Um, when they're a little bit older, uh, you know, maybe they're six. Where does the sun go at night? Well, you know, the, the sun goes across the go- sky during the day, and then it goes, it go- the sun goes under the earth at night, and they have daytime, and we have nighttime. Well, the sun doesn't, we know by science that the sun doesn't go anywhere. The sun isn't moving. We're turning. But a six-year-old doesn't understand that, that, right? And so some of this is about God dealing with a with a nation in a in the midst of violence, 
dealing with a violent people, and, um, and some of this is about God allowing things that he doesn't want, but he, he allows for the sake of their, their, their growing in their understanding of what, what God is like. But then we come to Jesus, and God reveals in Jesus a more perfect understanding of how God does warfare by sacrificing himself. We see in Christ what God's warfare really looks like. In the Old Testament, maybe, are the Israelites not prepared for that type of love? To understand that type of love? Yeah, yeah, possibly. And, and, uh, and then another, another, and we need to wrap this up, I know, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, and then there's, there's those who have written about this that, that say that God has the prerogative because he's God to give and take life because, because he doesn't have sin in the mix of his heart causing him to do things that are evil and wrong and, and unjust. And the reality is, remember when we talked about the, the, the nations worshiping those false gods? The reality is that the people that God, that, that the Israelites were dealing with when they moved into the land, the evil was so great in that region. In fact, God had said he was keeping the Israelites in Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. He said, I'm going to keep them in Egypt for 400 years because he said in, um, in Genesis 15, he tells, Mo, he tells Abraham before it even happens, I'm going to keep your descendants in Egypt for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. But when God sent his people out to move into the promised land, he actually sent them out as an arm of justice to deal with the sin of the Amorites that had become so evil and so horrible that the entire culture was was uh was saturated with sexual sin um was uh was sacrificing humans and children to demons i mean it was it was ingrained in their culture to do this evil evil stuff and they had been and in fact um last thing is one of the comment- one commentator says that the only cities that God actually sends the Israelites to completely annihilate were cities that are described as having one of those giants, those Nephilim, as kings or leaders in the city. So they were actually cities that were completely given over to demon worship. And the sin was so evil and so vile that God needed to stamp it out, right? So there's, there's, a, there's another, another thing I don't have time to get to. But there's, so there's many ways of looking at this. And, uh, and it's difficult. It's, it's challenging to wrestle with. Yeah. But don't, don't just take what you read at face value and not think there's something going on here that I may not, as a 21st century person, mm-hmm. understand. 
and uh, and yeah, it, you're, we're good to wrestle with it for sure. Well, those were uh, we got through eight of the eleven questions. I'd just like to read the last three, and I know Pastor this week's going to put them on EB updates. Uh, why was only the woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus and not the man as well? I want to know more about M A I D and. Um. Mutual and, assistance in dying. Oh, that's what it is, okay. Yeah. And the Christian rights and a wrong of this type of mentality. What is the definite proof to tell someone, or what is the definition of the proof to tell someone who does not believe in God that he is indeed real? So those are the three questions I think we'll tackle yeah. through EV yeah. update sure. and through the video. Sure. Well, thank you, Good. Pastor, for, for tackling All this right. very, very difficult Some heavy one. stuff today, yeah. Very much so. Thank you very much. Yeah. Let's stand, folks. Let's stand. Um, you know, um, I think it's important to to understand, I mean, this the violence in the Old Testament, the violence in the Bible that we read. I mean, the most violent thing that happened of all was that we, we brutally tortured and murdered the Son of God on the cross. Right? That Jesus came to enter into our violent world and to make himself the recipient of our violence. Right? so that through that, we would be set free from our sin and our violence. And the fact that the Bible deals with violence, that it describes the things that it does, I think is, is amazing. And here's why I think that. Because the Bible is not a book of fairy tales. It's not a book of feel-good stories to make you just feel warm and fuzzy when you sit by the fire and read fairy tales. But it is a book about real life. And that God came into a real, real world, into real life. He has real solutions and real answers and real hope for us where we live in the midst of brokenness and violence and hatred and all the things that we see in this world. God is a real God who has real answers for real mess. And I think that is, uh, that's, if we have one takeaway today, let it be that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us today. I thank you for the ways that you work in our lives. I thank you, God, for every person here, every person watching online, and every person that we may come in contact with and talk to that, that God is wrestling with real spiritual issues and real life issues. And that God, you are the hope that was sent. Jesus, you are the hope that was sent into this world. And I thank you that you are, you are not a fairy tale hope. You are not a wishful hope, but you are a real hope. And that our, that our faith is anchored in a God who loves us and a God who cares. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness today. May we go in your strength and presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for answering or responding to those questions. And 
perhaps uh, you're here today and you're not in a relationship with Jesus and you would love to have a walk with God, we would just encourage you to come and there'll be a member of the breakthrough team that will pray with you. Maybe you're here present uh, this morning with a need that you would like special prayer for. We would encourage you to come as well and we will pray for you. You have yourself a great day and God bless you.